Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM. This is Georgia College Connections. I'm Matt Ressing from the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business, and I'm here today with Paul Avalar, a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice. Thank you for joining us today, Paul. Thank you for having me. Now, Paul is here hosted by the Georgia College Economics and Investment Club. He's on campus today to speak in a few different classes on campus, and this evening he'll be speaking on a lecture called The Audacity of Nope, Why and How Judges Must Enforce the Constitution. Now, Paul, tell us a little bit about the Institute for Justice. What is your mission? What sort of cases does this institute bring? Sure. So the Institute for Justice was founded 25 years ago, this year, in fact, and we exist to litigate primarily in four areas. We do free speech, economic liberty, private property rights, and we defend school choice programs. And so we not only bring cases to court, we help defend people when they are involved in these sorts of issues, and we also do a lot of public outreach and activism in order to teach people how to defend their own rights, even without our help. Now, where is this institute based? So we were uh, based originally, and our headquarters is still in Arlington, Virginia, uh, but we have offices across the country now uh, in Phoenix, where I am, uh, in Seattle, in Austin, Texas, in Minneapolis, Miami, and we have a law school program at the University of Chicago. Could you give us a sense of your client profile, what sort of cases you take on? Sure. So we defend uh, Americans in in all walks of life, but I think primarily we defend folks uh, who really need our help and who could never, ever afford uh, a lawyer uh, on their own. So, for example, in our economic liberty work, We defend people who are just trying to earn an honest living in in a number of different kinds of occupations. Nothing like doctors or lawyers, but more day-to-day things like hair braiders or taxi drivers or stuff like that. In school choice, we defend parents uh, of children who want to take advantage of these school choice programs so that they can make the educational decisions for their children that they will be best for their children, even though they couldn't otherwise afford to make those sorts of choices for their kids. In free speech areas, we defend all sorts of people, people who have gotten in trouble for campaign finance regulations. Occupational speech has become a really big area. We've defended people, for example, who got in trouble for writing a an op-ed in a newspaper because that op-ed was supposedly the practices of psychology. We've defended other people who wanted to do uh, what's called commercial speech. We defend basically anyone whose rights to free speech are being offended. The private property side, we have taken on primarily two different kinds of cases. People who are the targets of eminent domain abuse, where the government is trying to take their home or their business and use it or hand it off to a private developer for something that's not a, a public use as is required by the federal constitution, the Fifth Amendment. We're also doing a lot of work now with people who are the victims of civil forfeiture abuse, and that's where the government can try and take your property from you permanently based on the suspicion that your property was involved with some crime, even if you've never been charged with a crime, much less convicted of one. 
So that's really the sort of in a broad sketches the kind of people that we represent. So it sounds like most of your cases are on the other side of the government. So you're litigating against government attorneys, against government institutions, federal and state. And the government has a lot more resources than people like your clients. So how are you able to stay afloat? How does the Institute fund itself? IJ is a 501c3 organization. So we're a nonprofit organization and contributions to us are tax deductible. We have the very generous support of, of a large number of donors. Most of our donors are self-made people, or they just really believe in, in our mission and want to contribute $20, $25 uh, to the cause because we do take on these sorts of cases. And because we are donor-funded, we are really able to dedicate the type of time and resources to these cases to help people who, in the ordinary course, would never be able to afford a lawyer and who, in the, the ordinary course of events, no lawyer would be able to dedicate as much time and resources as we can. We spend multiples of money defending people to protect, say, their car, a car which may not be worth very much, but it's the principle that matters for them and for us. And so our donors allow us to do that. Now, what's your selection process? I imagine there might be a lot of people that want to take advantage of this service. How do you choose which cases are not just worth it from a moral standpoint, but where the game is worth the candle, where you feel actual difference could be made? So we exist to change the law. We're very open about that. And so what we are looking for when we take on cases uh, are cases that will change the law. We have to turn down a lot of good cases, cases where there are very deserving folks people who really have been harmed, but for some reason or another, their case won't allow us to change the law. And so we're looking for outrageous facts. We're looking for villains. We're looking for truly innocent victims, people who are in this situation through absolutely no fault of their own and now find themselves targeted by a government that doesn't seem to care about their rights and who's just dead set on going against them. Now, in our next segment, we're going to talk about a specific string of cases that you're currently litigating involving government regulation in business licensing, specifically the licensing of African hair braiders. But I wonder if you could just briefly tell us about occupational licensing in general. Who does it and what sort of industries are regulated? Occupational licensing is really just a government permission slip to go to work. In the 1950s, only about one in 20 Americans, about 5% of the population, needed a license to do their job. And these were the traditional sorts of things you think of when you think of licensing. Doctors, lawyers, dentists, registered nurses, things like that. Today, however, that number has grown from 5% to 25%. That is one in four Americans now requires a government license to do their job. And that growth has not been because we now have more doctors and lawyers and dentists, certainly not entirely. As the Obama administration itself has pointed out in a 2015 report, two-thirds of the growth in occupational licenses has come because we're licensing things that we never used to, uh, things like florists and things, things of that nature. And we'll talk some more about those regulated industries after the break. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm Matt Ressing, talking with Paul Avalar, Senior Attorney with the Institute for Justice.
Welcome back to WRGC 88.3 FM. This is Georgia College Connections. I'm Matt Ressing, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. With me in the studio is Paul Avalar, Senior Attorney for the Institute for Justice. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Thank you for having me. Now, just before the break, we were talking about regulated industries and how the state can say, you need a license to carry out this certain commercial activity. Could you give us a sense of just what type of industries are regulated by the state and what's the justification for these licensing requirements? Yeah, so occupational licensing is is a regulation that happens almost exclusively at the state level. We're not talking about a federal program here. We're talking about licensing decisions that are being made by the 50 states, each one sort of doing their own thing. One of the key things to remember with licensing is that it's sold generally as a way of protecting the public health and safety, as a way of guaranteeing that there are certain minimum qualifications for people who, for example, are surgeons or lawyers or what have you. But as we've seen licensing creep out and affect ever more sorts of occupations, it has begun to be imposed on things that present much less of an obvious public health or safety threat. Again, things like florists or painting contractors or any number of other occupations. The Institute for Justice has studied 102 medium to low income occupations. These are not doctors and lawyers. These are things much more like teachers or bus drivers or things like that. And it's shown that there's this big growth there of some 1,100 occupations that are licensed across the country, just a small number, fewer than, I think, 60, are licensed in every state. In fact, I think it's a lot lower than that. So there's a lot of variation between the states. And as academics have begun to study this more and more, they've realized that the idea of licensing maybe has been oversold and the burdens have maybe not been fully appreciated. And what's really interesting, really fascinating in a world in which we seem to have ever more partisan rancor is that this is an issue that seems to be building some bipartisan support across all the states. So you have conservative or libertarian organizations and politicians finding themselves in agreement with President Obama, who in 2015, his White House published a report on occupational licensing, noting all of the research that was happening in the field that had been published at that time calling into question some people's basic assumptions about the benefits and the burdens of licensing and who benefits and who burdens specifically. And when we look at the states that have these licensing requirements, and I take it that every state has at least some licensing requirements, is there a big partisan divide? Do we see that red states have less or more, or it doesn't seem to track according to political affiliation? It does not track according to political affiliation. In this report that IJ did, what we found was the most burdensome and onerous licensed state in the country was my home state, Arizona, a state that has a reputation for being very red, conservative, Republican, small government type. And yet uh, we had some of the most onerous uh, regulations in the country. Again, this is not so much a bipartisan issue. One of the things that this Obama administration report says, as other research has, is that whether or not an occupation is licensed oftentimes is, is most highly correlated with the political strength of the industry that it's in. That is, the stronger the industry, the stronger the political strength of the industry, the more likely that industry is to be licensed. 
And that's, I think, a pretty clear example of public choice economics, regulatory capture, rent-seeking, those sorts of ideas, all of which go to the idea that these industries have a lot to gain by having licensing, and licensing excludes competition. And so a lot of folks who are in the industry welcome licensing as a way of preventing competition, and then that these burdens fall disproportionately on folks who don't have the licenses and don't have the resources to get the licenses. So the poor, minorities, immigrants, elderly workers who are changing careers, military families, and people who have maybe a criminal history. These are the, the populations that are most harmed by these. So what you're seeing a really, I think, fascinatingly, is a, as a building coalition between smaller government, smaller regulation Republicans and social justice Democrats coming together on an issue and saying, wait a minute, there is a problem here and maybe we can work together. I think a lot like what happened with regard to eminent domain in the, in the wake of Kelo. You had these two different sorts of groups coming together to agree on some ideas. They're coming from different places, but they, they wind up in the same place. Sounds like this might also be the case with civil forfeiture, which I know is another matter that your firm has an interest in. Absolutely. You know, you were seeing a lot of, of a lot of interest there from traditionally center-right groups who are very exercised about protecting property rights and center-left groups who are very exercised about protecting what they view as targeted minorities. When you get these two groups together, you realize that they're concerned about a lot of the same thing. They, again, they may speak a different language, but ultimately they're they're together on it. And I think it's sort of an exciting time politically to be working on these issues. Now, what are the penalties for non-compliance? If you're an unlicensed florist or a cosmetologist, is it a, a slap on the wrist, a fine? Do you give up all of your profits? Or could you even go to jail for running an unlicensed business? So as with all things in the law, the answer is it's complicated and it depends. Because licensing is done at the state level, each state has slightly different laws. In a lot of places, it's initially a slap on the wrist, maybe a $1,000 fine, still pretty heavy, but a civil fine. But in some instances, if you keep working despite being told not to, it actually becomes a felony. So, for example, in Nebraska, it was a class three felony to be braiding hair without a license if you'd been told not to already. And a class three felony is punishable by $5,000 fine and several years in jail. So these, these are sorts of penalties that can build up very quickly. And it sounds like in some states, if you were convicted of a felony for not having a license, that might mean you could never get that license in, in the future because you now have a criminal record. Is That's that correct? correct. Some states absolutely have a flat ban on people who have criminal convictions from getting a license of any kind. And so if you were a stupid 18-year-old kid and you stole a car, you shouldn't do that. You should be punished. But when you get out of jail, you may never be able to work in any field that has a license. And when that field includes things like things that you would be able to do, handymen or painting contractors or other sorts of these jobs that people with not a lot of, of higher education are perfectly capable of doing and making a great living at, when you cut that off from them, you really create problems down the line with criminal recidivism, so the research shows. After the break, we're going to talk specifically about African hair braiding industries and your work with the Braiding Freedom Initiative. You're listening to WRGC 88.3. I'm Matt Ressing with Paul Avalar from the Institute for Justice.
Welcome back to WRGC 88.3 FM. This is Georgia College Connections. I'm Matt Ressing, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at the J. Whitney Bunting College of Business at Georgia College. With me in the studio is Paul Avalar, Senior Attorney for the Institute for Justice. We're talking about licensing requirements and regulation. And Paul, we were about to talk specifically about African hair braiding and this work that you're doing with a program called the Braiding Freedom Initiative. So my first question to you is, what is African hair braiding? African hair braiding is just what it says. It's braiding hair. It's traditionally done by and for people of African descent because genetically their hair tends to be a little different. It's not straight. It can be tightly textured or coiled. And so there are a couple of different kinds of styles that work uniquely well with that kind of hair. It's also known as natural hair braiding. And the natural hair care movement has a, there's a, a big movement now amongst African Americans for this because it's a, it's a style that doesn't require the use of chemicals, doesn't use heat, doesn't use cutting. It really works with these women's natural hair texture as opposed to what's been taught for years in Western-style cosmetology schools that wind up chemically treating out the unique aspects of their hair in order to straighten it. And so we have been working with African hair braiders for years. In fact, our very first case was on behalf of an African hair braider, trying to ensure that mostly women, African-Americans and African immigrants who have the skills to do this are free to earn an honest living without having to jump through so many government hoops. So is African hair braiding a regulated industry? Do you need a business or a state license to perform this work? And does it depend on what state you live in? It absolutely depends on which state you live in. As of today, there are 20 states, including Georgia, which do not require a license, an occupational license, in order to braid hair. There are another 15 states, or 14 states plus D.C., that have some form of specialized license for African hair braiding. And that specialized license can be anywhere from zero hours of training required all the way up through 600 hours of training required in order to get this license. The remainder of the states have most likely, again, it's complicated, require you to get a cosmetology or similar kind of license. And this requires anywhere from 1,000 to 2,100 hours of classroom training. And the problem there, aside from the sheer number of hours, ridiculous number of hours just to braid hair, is that by their own admission, the vast majority of this training has absolutely nothing to do with what natural hair braiders do because they're not cosmetologists. They don't want to be cosmetologists. They do something different, but they're stuck with the laws of their state. Now, you head up an area within the Institute for Justice called the Braiding Freedom Initiative. That sounds more than just one case that you're handling. What's the scope of the Braiding Freedom Initiative? The Braiding Freedom Initiative was launched two years ago with the idea that we were going to use all of the resources that we had available, our research, our activism, our legislation, and our litigation, to really push the idea of braiding freedom forward the idea that braiders should not be required to get these ridiculously burdensome and irrelevant licenses just to earn an honest living, just to support themselves and their families through their skills, their very specialized skills. And I think we've been pretty successful. In the last just two years, something like nine states have gone from regulating, requiring some kind of license for braiding to not. 
we've not been involved in every one of those fights, but we would like to think that our pushing this idea to the forefront of discussions has motivated a lot of people and shown a lot of people the kinds of beneficial reforms that can be done. So it sounds like what your firm starts with is what we might call a soft power approach, where you're educating people as to what this is, maybe educating legislatures as to uh, this is different than cosmetology, here's why, and perhaps even sponsoring some bills to go through the legislatures to say this is different, that's that these particular hair braiders out from under the cosmetology license. But occasionally the soft power doesn't work and you have to go to court. I thought we might spend some time focusing on a recent case in federal court in Missouri, where you were not able to get a legislative solution to this and you you had to take it, you had to file a federal lawsuit. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on in Missouri and what your legal arguments that the current regime should be overturned? Well, Missouri is one of those states that requires a full-blown cosmetology license in order to braid hair. That means in Missouri, you have to have 1,500 hours of training of almost entirely irrelevant training, just in order to braid hair for money. And for many years, local braiders had tried to work through the legislature, with the legislature, to get this law changed because, again, so many other states are perfectly fine without having to license this. The problem, of course, is that legislating is hard, especially for folks who don't have the experience, don't have maybe the educational background, don't have the resources to do that sort of thing. There's a reason why so many groups in this country hire lobbyists. It's just a lot easier to have them spend all their time at the legislature, especially if, if say, you're a braider who lives in St. Louis and the Missouri state capitals all the way across the state in Jefferson City. It's almost impossible for you to really exercise your ability to do that. And so they had tried and failed, and that's the reason why we, we wound up going to court. So you took this case to court, and you advanced several constitutional arguments. This was in federal court. You were bringing up the U.S. Constitution. But in this particular case, you lost. The judge said that, as Justice Scalia might have said, this law was stupid but constitutional. The judge said, it's not my job to decide whether this law makes sense. Maybe it doesn't, but it's within the power of the state government to pass it. It's a little disappointing, but uh, I'm sure you're going to bounce back. What's next for this case and for the Braiding Freedom Initiative in general? Well, we're appealing that decision. We're going to the the Eighth Circuit Court to appeal this decision. The decision is just wrong. There have been other federal courts that have looked at exactly the same sorts of programs and said, no, these are unconstitutional. In fact, this Missouri court's the first one to ever do what it did and say, no, this sort of thing is constitutional. But the Missouri decision is really indicative of a much larger conversation that lawyers and judges and academics have been having about constitutional law for really decades now. And that is, what is the appropriate role of a judge in a system like this? To what extent should a judge be reviewing enactments by the legislature or by uh, administrative agencies and saying, no, you, you can't do that, that's unconstitutional? There are some who have said, look, judges shouldn't be doing this at all. Uh, they, they really need to be hands-off. They need to be incredibly deferential. That's what this judge was here. There are others who have said, no, that's not right. Judges need to be much more active in this area. They need to be much more engaged in looking at, at real facts and figuring out what's actually going on in these cases uh, and, and any number of variations on that sort of discussion. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of Georgia College Connections, and thank you again for joining us on the Georgia College campus. 
We were talking with Paul Avalar, Senior Attorney with the Institute for Justice. I'm Matt Ressing, Assistant Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Georgia College, and you're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM.